Hello and welcome to the ZSL Wild Science Podcast. I'm Moni Böhm, a research fellow here at the Zoological Society of London's Institute of Zoology. And today we're talking about a very topical issue and perennial favorite of ours, rewilding. Now, rewilding is a topic that has really captured the imagination of conservationists and the general public over the past years or even decades. But it has also not been without its controversies. First of all, what is rewilding? Now, simply put, rewilding aims to increase, well, wildness of nature. So it aims to regenerate ecosystem functioning and develop self-sustaining ecosystems or achieve a combination of these. But what is wildness anyway? And how do we regenerate self-sustaining healthy ecosystems? That sounds all very complicated. And are people part of rewilding? So part of wild nature? I would say I know some people who definitely are. <laughs> and what is possible in terms of rewilding in the UK, where we have quite limited space compared to other parts of the world? So once again, so many questions. So I've enlisted the help of a great bunch of experts on rewilding, on ecosystem function and on, and this is another favorite term of mine, cue our recent episode on Madagascar, megafauna. Okay, so let's go wild with some questions for my first guest. You may remember her from one of our previous episodes on rewilding in a changing climate. It's Natalie Petrarelli. Hello. Natalie is a senior research fellow here at ZSL and has her fingers in more pies than I could feasibly eat. And I can eat a lot. But in short, I would probably summarize your research as looking at how environmental change, especially climate change, is impacting ecosystems and ecosystem function. Yeah, although I was a trained population biologist, so I started my career looking at population dynamics of roe deer and then all kinds of deers and then slowly moved into ecosystem dynamics. I like to see myself looking at those different dimensions of biodiversity. So really lots of different pies. Or very enthusiastic about a lot of topics. Of course, one of the topics or the topic to talk about today is rewilding. Why do you think it's now a good time to talk about rewilding? Well, there's a, a number of things that have changed since last time we did an event on rewilding. First, Brexit is looming and with it a lot of policy discussion on environmental legislation. So there's a lot of policy windows opening Uh, which means that discussion around rewilding have become more sustained and more uh, intense. Uh, the science has uh, started to move forward too. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion around definition, standards, establishing success. So this is a topic where the scientific community has started to engage much more. As you know, next decade is the decade of restoration. Uh, so definitely a good time to talk about rewilding and bringing back functioning ecosystem. And then there is the World Congress by the IUCN happening next year. And in it, there is a motion to try to drive consensus and a policy definition for rewilding uh, supported by the IUCN. So critically important to start to engage various stakeholders with rewilding discussions. But what is it? I would assume that there are about as many definitions of rewilding out there as there are probably people. There, uh, it certainly was the case before. I think we are starting to slowly move towards some form of consensus. We're not there yet. So I'm going to focus on things that people agree on. So rewilding is about a low human intervention, so low management. So it is about letting nature being in charge, doing its stuff. 
another stuff that most people agree on is ecosystem functioning. So how well your ecosystem is doing in terms of performing its functions, such as climate regulation, carbon sequestration, etc. So the focus is on functionality and not on composition. And that's a, a big divergence from other aspects of restoration or, or environmental policy that sometimes focus more on which species are there instead of is the ecosystem functioning well. That's where we start to, to have diverging opinion, etc., around the scale at which rewilding should be carried out or whether it is about trophic interaction, uh, whether you should have people in and out. So I'm going to leave that aside to potentially say that most people would agree that rewilding is complementary to restoration when restoration is understood as its original definition, which is bringing something back to where it was according to a historic baseline. And so those two are hopefully or designed to be complementary because, because you don't focus that much on which species are there or the composition, but much more on the functionality you kind of have an approach that is more suited to ecological restoration in the in the time of climate change so the the function of species is more important than the identity of the species which means that you're open to have ecosystem that looks a bit different from what you're used to so what would you like to see happening in the UK now in terms of rewilding? What's the one thing or the, the, the few things that need to happen to actually really push this forward? You said that we have this window of opportunity, right? Mm. What would we need to do? I think we need, uh, well, never ask a scientist what they should do because they always come to more data. But in this case, <laughs> I think it actually is justified. There is very, very few rewilding projects that meet the definition I was just given. So a project where you focus on functionality, this is not about reintroducing one specific species and look at the impact on an ecosystem, but really looking at the functionality of the ecosystem as a whole and letting it open to reboost or restart new function. There's, there's very little to look at. And therefore, a lot of the knowledge that we need to refine to make sure that we don't invest a lot of money in a rewilding project that goes nowhere is not really there. So what we need, I would say, the, the most important thing is actually rewilding projects going ahead so that we can start to learn as to what works, what doesn't work, how to implement it from the start. I think there's a lot of fear and frustration by various stakeholders as to how existing projects or potential projects are being discussed without systematically involving everyone, without taking consideration of various worries. There is also potential risk because there is very low human management and uh, there is more unpredictability in the, and all of that will need information to tailor, for example, risk assessment or best standard to set up a rewilding project. So actually what we need are examples to learn from. So having the opportunity to actually go with it and learn from it. What, what are the examples we currently do have? We must have a 
few at least. So I would say in the UK, a famous example is the NEP project, uh, which really does look at various aspects because there are species being reintroduced, but also new species settling in uh, because uh, there is the absence of management. There's data being collected. So that would be for the UK, a good one. There's one in the Netherlands, the Ostervatsen Platsen. So, so there are examples here and there, but to, to really learn about how difference in definition and concepts influence what you get out of a rewilding project. You would need information from a broader range of situations. That said, uh, I think we have enough to start moving with it. So my next guest is Henrike Schulte-Torbühne, aka Henny, who is a PhD student at Imperial College and our institute and lead author of a really cool manuscript looking at the policy consequences of rewilding. So, Henny, why is it a good time now to talk about rewilding in the UK? Uh, two, two reasons, really. One reason is that the UK is kind of a leader in rewilding, both the practice and the theory of it worldwide. So there's a lot of people in the UK already who think about rewilding. And there's also a lot of rewilding projects already in the UK, specifically in England and Scotland. So we already have a lot of experience with rewilding in the UK, although it is not yet kind of like a mainstream conservation tool. It's not integrated into UK national conservation policy, which neatly brings me to the second reason why it's a really good idea to think about rewilding now, which is um, Brexit and the fact that the UK is decoupling itself from the common agricultural policy of the of the EU and um, from the environmental policies of the EU, which means that the UK can take a completely new direction. And when you look at the environmental bill, there are some kind of interesting new directions, perhaps, that are sort of suggested by that bill. So all of that to say, rewilding is a really cool idea that people are already trying out in the UK. Now, after Brexit, we have the opportunity to put some cool new ideas into environmental policy. So it's it's a really good time to think about that now. When you mentioned uh, decoupling and Brexit, I suddenly had this picture of Gwyneth, Gwyneth Paltrow. Was it conscious uncoupling? I mean, decoupling, yes, it's it seems to be a process that has that is basically just as grievous and, and painful. So, yeah, that's one way to look at Brexit, I think. So I suppose to get policy on board of rewilding, one of the first things that we would need to do is really know what it actually is. And I yeah. suppose there's tons of different definitions for it. But to put it really simply, what's wild anyway? Yeah, so you really put your finger on the issue there in that we don't really know, basically, is the answer. There are so many different definitions and perceptions of wild. I'm just going to throw out maybe a couple of the aspects that people normally associate with wild. The first would be autonomy, nature and wildlife being able to choose their own path. So for a wild species, that might be um, free choice of where to forage or what to forage, where to reproduce and, and those kinds of things. And for nature, in inverted commas, more broadly, it might be floodplains and floods aren't being actively managed or prevented. They just happen as they want to. And then the vegetation responds to that. So there's autonomy. Sometimes it's associated with notions of remoteness and size. So often then we think about like aspects of the sub sublime, so the terror 
of nature, like nature is something that's sort of like bigger than people. And when you see it, you're sort of really moved because it's it's far away from the comforts of civilization and the, the world that you know and that you feel safe within. I think autonomy, large size, remoteness, and maybe sometimes unpredictability. Wild has notions of dangerous um, because it's unpredictable and uncontrolled because it's autonomous. That already brings me to my next question, because you mentioned wild quite often is perceived as this wild space that's far away. But aren't people part of wild nature too? Or could they be? Or should they be? Yeah. So one view of this, and it's the view that certainly Western conservationists have taken for a long time, is that people have a sort of undue influence on nature. And that means that people and nature are sort of inherently different. People tend to threaten nature. You know, if, if people take out species from an area, then that area has been made less wild by that influence. So in order to protect nature and to protect wild nature, we're kind of got to separate people from it. And that's, for instance, the idea behind things like very strictly protected areas where we say, okay, you can go up to this line and beyond that, you cannot go or you cannot forage, you cannot do agriculture, that space is set aside for nature. And when we look at the evidence, in many cases, separating people and people's activities from nature often really benefits biodiversity and in turn, wild nature. However, not all human activities are equal. You know, walking through a forest is not the same at all as cutting down a tree. I think everybody would agree with that. So it's really about thinking about a, a continuum of activities. There's no clear boundary between people and nature. You know, if you go back thousands and thousands of years, people, even Homo sapiens, was just one among many species that affected their environment. Then, you know, the agricultural revolution happened, the industrial revolution happened. Now we humans definitely have many more ways to influence nature at a scale that is unprecedented. But that doesn't mean that there aren't also ways to interact with nature that aren't destructive. So if you take that kind of opinion, then people are part of nature. And when people interact with nature, that's a normal almost valueless thing. It's just what happens in the world. So I suppose um, in the UK, we don't have huge amounts of space because we're sat on an island, essentially. Can rewilding even work in small places like the UK? I think absolutely. You know, you, you go to any park in London and it is so obvious that if you're in the middle of Hampstead Heath, that is wilder than if you're in the middle of Piccadilly Circus. Do we value that? Is that good enough for us? So certainly smaller areas, which often then tend to be areas that are close to uh, cities, you know, you have vegetation there, you have insects there, you have birds, but you might, you will probably not have um, several packs of wolves in the center of London. So we can't have all the species in these small sites, but that doesn't mean that the species that we can have can add to the wildness. It's also important from the perspective of the people who live in, in urban areas. Like I'm, a, I'm an urbanite myself. I distinctly feel the benefits of going to parks. And if there were more of these areas around where there was an abundance of wildlife that I could see, that would that would definitely be so cool for me. So there is this question of for whom are we rewilding? Because the large remote sites with the big carnivals will probably only be accessible for people who own cars or who can afford ecotourism. So these smaller sites might just be more accessible for more people. They do provide biodiversity. 
They can act as stepping stones. So if we we're careful about linking them up, then species can travel between them. I think sometimes people are a bit scared of kind of embracing the small sites because it feels like defeat. It feels like, oh, we can't have the big sites, so we'll just make do with what we have. And I think that doesn't have to be the case. When we talk about landscapes like the Yorkshire Dales or the Lake District, there's a big, more natural areas where we can have different aspirations. But that doesn't mean that we should just ignore all the small spaces, because I really think that there's such cool gains to be made in, in these small spaces. Obviously, also from a 2020 perspective, I think we all agreed that being out in green spaces and seeing wildness, even if it's relatively urban wildness, is definitely good for the soul. Quite often when we talk about rewilding, we talk about going back to some past state of wildness, looking back at what we had and what we've lost and trying to bring that back somehow. So do we need to do that? And is that even possible? I think often it, it is the guide that we need to look to. So if we if we have a site and we try to imagine what wild nature could look like at that site, we have to take into account how that site looked like before and also look at sites close by that maybe haven't been influenced by people as much. And we pull together information from historical ecology and archaeology to kind of imagine what wildness should look like. But I think there's increasingly we've come to realize that recreating the past state is often, we often can't do that. Be that because, you know, some species that were there thousands and thousands of years ago have gone extinct. I mean, that's the sort of, that's the most extreme version of that. But also because climate change is happening and a collection of species that might have been very happy in a certain place now may be really struggling 20, 30 years hence, or it might just look very different. And then the question is, okay, do we accept that change or do we manage against it? So I think in rewilding, because it has connotations of sort of a lack of management, my opinion certainly is that rewilding should aim to, to embrace those changes. That doesn't mean completely disregarding where a site came from, but taking that as a guide and as inspiration rather than a prescriptive goal. I like that inspiration of what's potentially possible or what we yes. should aim for. I like that. So now that we are going through this process of conscious uncoupling from the EU here in the UK, I, I suddenly realized I prefer saying that word <laughs> as opposed to Brexit. Really? It makes me flinch slightly less. Um, <laughs> what do we need to do in terms of policy to embrace rewilding? What, what would you like to see happen? What I would really like to see happen is um, enshrined at a very high level the need for community consultation um, and community involvement and leadership even for rewilding. For me, that has both like practical and sort of philosophical reasons. So um, from a practical perspective, if the communities aren't on board, then you can't, and we know this from conservation just generally, then you can't do conservation. And it, it's also a bit unethical to do things that go against the will of the community. I'd also say people who live around a site often have local ecological knowledge that is important. They might know about sources of historical ecological knowledge that outsiders, quote unquote, you know, consultants that come in to design a rewilding project might not be aware of. So it's just why would you throw away that knowledge? And then also philosophically, one thing that attracts people about rewilding is this idea that people can reconnect to nature. 
And so I can't imagine a successful rewilding site where where people who live around it don't feel like um, a sense of ownership and a sense of pride for that site. So my next guest is Paul Jepson. Paul describes himself as a conservationist, geographer, innovator, educator, and birder, so all the good stuff. He is the nature recovery lead at Ecosulis Limited, where he is developing new services at the intersection of rewilding technology and finance. He apparently became captivated by rewilding during a visit to Dutch rewilding sites with a group of students in 2005 and has been teaching, debating, and writing about rewilding ever since. Hi, Paul. Hi. So what was it that captivated you in 2005 about rewilding? At that time in my life, I was directing an MSc in um, Biodiversity Conservation Management at Oxford, which I did up until a couple of years ago. But I'd also, two things came together. I'd, I'd spent maybe three or four years doing a lot of work on the Sumatran frontier. And to be honest, I'd got, I got a bit down about it. I mean, it's just so... You know, for any of us who love nature, when you're just seeing forests being destroyed at that rate and realising the chaos and, you know, how little we could do, you sort of lose hope a bit as a conservationist. And then at the same time with, um, you know, the course was quite new and we were teaching classic biodiversity science, which is really about the the science of loss. And I, I really remember a student, a group of students just turning around and said, look, we don't want to learn this. We don't want to devote our lives just trying to make nature loss less worse than it's going to be we want the conceptual frameworks we want the inspiration we want the case studies for us to shape you know a new conservation if you like anyhow it just so happened that i read an article about the work on usvardas plazen so um i said right come on we can hire a couple of minibuses let's go and that's where we met um, some of the dutch rewilders and in particular franz vera and it was just wow this is this is radical this is innovative this is hopeful. And, and my research area has always been into policy, interdisciplinary science. And really that, that took not only me, but it actually took our department and our students on this, this journey of discovery, if that's not a cliche. And it just fitted into so many different branches of science we do, you know, advances in long-term ecology, advances in the ecosystem science, advances in policy, the community side, the entrepreneurial side. And I think that's what captivated me about it, just this beautiful blend between radical pioneering practice and the practitioners who were just, you know, just some incredible people doing this stuff and the science coming together. And ultimately, you know, maybe what I needed and I think a lot of us needed is rewilding, providing this new environmental narrative, which is a narrative of recovery and it's hopeful and empowering and ambitious. I totally agree. So I work on biodiversity indicators. We permanently talk about loss. And I think just talking about the gains that we can actually make if we put our minds to it is is absolutely vital. So why would now be the time to do rewilding in the UK? Well, really, because whatever we think about Brexit, we have a real window of opportunity. And I think that's coming from two or three directions. One of the directions is that with Brexit, we're leaving the common agricultural policy and governments or UK governments have never been comfortable with a subsidy based agricultural policy. So there's a political ambition to move to a land economy, which is public payments for public goods. And the interesting thing and the really exciting thing is the government have said that we're public goods are no long, longer just agricultural goods, you know, food security and so forth, but they're environmental public goods as well. 
And then alongside that with the 25 year environment plan, you know, the government said we want to leave nature in a better place than we found it, which, you know, wow. So we're actually at this juncture in time where we're moving from a conservation policy ambition, which is nature protection to nature protection plus nature recovery. And then, of course, at the top level, the UN's declared this the decade of ecosystem restoration. Added to that, we've got these compelling visions coming through, which are just capturing the public imagination. You know, these sort of popular books, Wilding by Isabella Tree. Wow, what a great account of net. We can have the confidence to imagine that we have these wonderful natures. So I think there's the this sort of zeitgeist of people are just sick of the doom and gloom and they want hope and recovery. This sounds all excellent and I'm totally on board of this. Can we just go out and just define new policies which draw on rewilding theory and then we're good to go? Does that is that how it works? Unfortunately not. So um, what is policy? And sometimes we don't talk about this enough. So the sort of different levels of policy. So at this sort of top big level, we have the ideology like neoliberalism or socialism or or whatever. And then we have what in technical terms we have the policy discourses, the the ways of thinking about or talking about how you're going to do what. So as I said, you know, in nature, we've always had the the discourse of nature protection, the discourse of biodiversity and biodiversity as a form of natural resource. And now we have a new policy discourse of natural capital. And this is the, the discourse is that we can understand nature as assets which generate ecosystem services, which benefits society. So if we conserve and restore our natural assets, that will produce benefits which are meaningful to society and economy. This is a you know great idea. It's been a really good innovation of the economists, valuing the environment in mainstream economic cost-benefit decision-making, which whether we like it or not, that's how a lot of the world works. But there's a third level of policy, and this is what we call the implementation policy, which is actually the, the instruments of what you do and how you do it you know, taxes, incentives. But a key part of that is actually how you structure, in our case, how you structure nature. So one of the difficulties we've got with rewilding is that as a science, it's quite radical from a policy perspective, because it's saying that, you know, the basic idea is that you kickstart nature, you kickstart natural processes, and then you let the forces of nature and let nature shape itself. And it's quite relaxed about novelty. It's quite relaxed about uncertainty. It's saying we can't restore a past nature. We can take inspiration from past natures to shape future natures. That is quite unsettling because we don't have any policy instruments to know how to do that. Also, it's quite unsettling in the sense that if you say that nature can be restored, if you say that nature is recoverable, if you say that actually we've got a new and better way of doing nature conservation, that will just play into the, the development lobbies. They'll say, oh, great. So all of those protected areas which are in the in the wrong place, we could just get rid of those and, and do it in this way. So there's a real tension in there. But the bit I was talking about really was this idea that if we're going to move from nature protection to nature recovery, we need to innovate with how you put things actually into practice. But the space for that policy innovation has been taken by natural capital. And what the natural capital people have, the way it's been done in the bureaucracy, is rather than design new implementation policy, they've just repurposed the old policy we had. And the old policy we had is founded on classifications of habitats. So I'm sure a lot of people, oh yeah, habitat, you know, hay meadow, ancient woodland, peat bog. 
And the way we set up policy in the protection regime was to specify these habitats by different types of vegetation. And then you could specify those in law and then you could manage them and you could protect them. You could set policy targets. It worked really well, really powerful protective law. But when it comes to rewilding, that's not the idea. You know, we're not about conserving standard types of vegetation communities. Rewilding is all about restoring ecological interactions, which then go their own way. Natural capital discourse, fine. It's not that dissimilar from rewilding, because rewilding is also saying, why are we restoring nature? Partly for nature's own sake, but because nature-based solutions, you know, they can provide new forms of economic jobs, new forms of entrepreneurship, you know, a nature-based land economy. They're great. You know, rewilded areas can help with natural flood control and all of these sort of things. So at the top level, it, it's not that dissimilar. But there's this disjunct because to get easy traction within the institutions of nature conservation, natural capitals just said, well, let's go with the habitat-based approach, which we already had. And that has two problems, really. One is that habitats are a proxy for ecosystem services. It's a bit of a jump of scientific faith. And the second one is those habitat classifications were based on the natures which expressed millennia of ecological degradation. So there's a risk that we just lock in ecological degradation into the future. So how can we go about aligning rewilding and the natural capital narrative? I, I more think about this is, is how do we transition our institutions of nature conservation? You know, they were designed in the 1980s and 1990s. They're ageing. The science is way ahead now of them. And actually, I would argue that public opinion and that what people want from nature is way ahead of those. But this question of how you transition, it, it's, it's a really interesting one. And this is where I think rewilders and natural capital communities should be having a dialogue because I think we can offer each other quite a lot here. And the conclusion I come from this is that institutions rightly resist change because you couldn't have stability there. And, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and they've pulled them together. But also institutions need to be innovative. And interestingly, back in the 1980s, when we had very structured institutions, you remember, we used, you know, the big government days. That, that structure could do innovation within it. But now everything is outsourced and then everything has to be specified and contracted. There's very little innovation space within government. And interestingly, within nature conservation, we have never done innovation because we've always been trying to protect. So we as a sector have more of an innovation deficit than I would argue any other sector in the country has. And my view is that we've just got to recognise that and address it. And one way we could think of doing that, if the government was willing, and the regulators were willing, and we were all willing, is to create spaces of nature innovation. So you actually designate areas where we say, okay, we're going to relax some of the policy, or we're going to do more relaxed interpretations of laws and policies. And in those areas, we're going to start doing rewilding, or in other areas, you might do regenerative agriculture, I don't know, but we're going to do you know, rewilding for the purpose of this discussion. And when you have these spaces of innovation, then institutions, they can either say, no, we're not going there, we hate it, and we're going to reject it. So this would be the government institutions. But th then they have to account for why not. And that is good democracy. But the idea that we actually need spaces of nature innovation, to be honest, to develop new policies and, and new economies, and also just places where progressive professionals from different walks of life can come together and, and start thinking about how to do it. I think we do know a bit about how to do institutional transformation and move. I just don't think we've got the confidence to do it at the moment. It sounds really interesting, though, your idea of setting aside some spaces, essentially, where you, you let these innovative ways run 
and see what happens with it. It's like it's like also setting up little experimental sites to see how rewilding it, would function in the UK, yeah. which is really cool. So the Dutch have done this on the East Vardis Plaza in Europe. And then the Geldersay Port was another one. Bodemus was another one. Through this, they transitioned institutions of Dutch delta management from an engineering approach to a natural river approach. And it's just like, wow. Wow, that's quite a change. Interesting, in the UK, we do have a designation which could be interpreted for nature innovation areas. And that's the National Nature Reserve designation. Now, National Nature Reserves were set up with an experimental purpose. The idea was to almost do sort of experimentation which, with how we might manage habitats to, I don't know, support different species. But that wasn't specified in the law. It was just that they're there for an experimental mandate. So there is an actual an opportunity to reinterpret that law to create the space to do National Nature Recovery Areas or National Nature Innovation Areas. Um, of course, or you found a loophole. <laughs> well, it's not really a loophole. I mean, people say the art of doing policy is to find things which are already there. Yeah. Um, you know, rather than saying that you've got to, to reinvent everything. But, you know, the other art of doing policy is to be a policy entrepreneur where you can be inside government, you know, sort of doing these things. But within the UK green lobby, there's not a lot of enthusiasm for rewilding yet, I don't think. I think it's building, but I think there's been a lot of scepticism. The trouble is a lot of our big NGOs are also built on that old protection regime. So it's unsettling for everybody. But, you know, we we all like doing experiments. We're all getting excited by rewilding projects. So it might be nice to scale that up. I mean, now is obviously a good time with Brexit and the UN decade of of ecosystem restoration and all these various other things that might give us an opportunity to actually maybe do some rewilding. What would you like to see next? I would like to see a number of things. First of all, I would like the government to rename the Natural Capital Committee, which is our main you know, external committee guiding conservation policy, to the Natural Nature Recovery uh, Committee. I would like the government to set up, because it does have to come from DEFRA or Natural England, to actually actively commission some studies on how they can support nature recovery. But then I'd also, I'd just like the big NGOs to get together and with government, or just everybody to get together and say, come on, let, let's do something amazing. There's a real risk at the moment that here we are in, in 2020, the beginning of the decade of nature restoration, the time when we have the opportunity as a nation to, to redefine our policy because we come out of the out of the European uh, Union. We could be here in 2030 and we look back and we go, my goodness, that was a missed opportunity. The science was there. The demonstration projects in the Netherlands and elsewhere was there. I mean, you know, in the UK, we are leaders, world leaders in sustainable finance. We're pretty good on technology. We're great on rewilding science. So I think there needs to be a bit more of a national dialogue. But I think I think really our um, our big NGOs and our government agencies just need to go for it. Okay, so next to prove my point that PhD students literally make the world go round, my next guest is also a PhD student here at the Institute and at the University of Reading. It's Will Farron. Now, Will is studying megafauna, which is one of my favorite terms, and it will soon become very clear why this topic matters to rewilding. He's also a self-described rewilding fan. Now, Will, great to have you here. Thanks Uh, so much for having me. Can you tell us a bit about what you're working on for your PhD? Yeah, so the full title of my PhD is The Impacts of Loss of Megafauna from Arid Land Ephemeral Rivers and the Results for the Ecosystem Function. And what that basically means in English is what does the loss of the largest animals, so we're talking like giraffes and elephants, all the big boys, 
what the loss of them from ephemeral rivers, which are rivers that only run for about a week in a year at most, what the loss of those animals means for the ecosystem function of those uh, riparian habitats. There's a lot of jargon there. And to be honest, a lot of what I was doing in the first months was basically trying to uh, define each of those terms because there's historically been some debate over just what these definitions should account for. The big one being ecosystem function, which is probably the most relevant towards rewilding because historically people have used the terms like ecosystem function and ecosystem service and ecosystem process all basically describing the same thing when they're actually all very, very different. Well, not different, but they're all different components of the same thing as opposed to the same things themselves. So how has it gone with getting it straight in your head? I mean, you've already done really well explaining megafauna. I like the term all the big boys. That's yeah. pretty good. <laughs> well, even that one. I know you had James Hanford on a talk before, and he, he did a pretty good job of describing like the roles the megafauna plays. Yes, we talked about megafauna of Madagascar. Yeah. From like a paleoecology point of view, the, the definition of just a megafauna has really been based on, is this species alive in this time period? Or on the flip side of that, like how heavy is this species? The most traditional like definition of megafauna is everything over 44 kilograms. Now, I didn't, being from the UK, only really ever use like metrics. So I didn't know that 44 kilograms is 100 pounds. Do you, do you understand my, do you understand like my kind of... I definitely understand that I qualify as megafauna under that description. Yeah, <laughs> that's actually another definition. Is it, does it weigh more than a human? If so, then yes, it's a megafauna. That's a, that's. Oh, that mean. disqualifies me instantly again. <laughs> it's a roller coaster ride today. So, so size is one way, I suppose, of looking at it. But it seems a little bit arbitrary because it's yeah. essentially just some number that at some point seemed like a good idea to to define it, right? But is there not more something about what megafauna should be able to do and provide ecosystems with? Yeah, I, I agree. That's the mindset I've adopted more recently. Because if you go by megafauna is whatever's biggest, then whatever is biggest is always going to be different in any time or place. Well, I'm sitting in a room with a dog. I'm I'm the megafauna, <laughs> but, if I, but if I leave, she's the megafauna. So in my opinion, it should kind of really come down to two things. Like the first, does it provide some sort of um, unique function? Imagine like your ecosystem engineers, like your elephants, like your hippos, the guys who like pick up stuff and move them around. Or on the flip side of that, like imagine your keystone species, like your apex predators. So that's one aspect, but then not everything that does those things is necessarily immune to the presence of other species. So the kind of uh, the other aspect, I think, is it resistant to trophic pressures? And by that, I mean, it's not invulnerable to predation. Anything can get eaten. We've seen elephants um, get eaten by lions. We've seen uh, lions get eaten by hyenas. It does the existence of predators influence its behavior in any way or influence its role in a ecological sense so it's essentially an interplay between it needs to have some sort of function that's yes. important for the ecosystem but it also needs to be able to actually fulfill this function even when predators are present so when we start thinking then about rewilding megafauna or bringing back the big boys or girls what do we need to do i mean can we just put some megafauna species in and then that's it job done it can't be that easy Yeah, and as much as I would absolutely love to see the UK overrun with um, with like wolves and giant boars and wild boars everywhere, yeah, it's not just a simple fix. 
The thing about more specifically ecosystem engineers, which I'm using kind of interchangeably with Megafauna in a sense, the thing about ecosystem engineers is that if there's not enough of them, they're not going to make a difference. And if there's too much of them, they will cause uh, more harm than good. And that's also kind of similar with predator and prey dynamics. If you include uh, like apex predators as your uh, megafauna, like if there's too many of them, they're just going to completely wipe out the prey population and not allow it to rebound. So what we need, what rewilders need to do, not we, because this is way, sounds way too difficult for me. I'm not going to not gonna, not gonna get involved. <laughs> what rewilders need to do is try to identify and maintain a sweet spot of megafauna population density. And I say population density in the, the literal meaning, not population size, population density, like how much is appropriate for the amount of space you want them to occupy. Yeah, and that in itself is really difficult because it's something which, even if you identify it once for one specific species, it's something that's constantly in flux. Again, thinking of mega carnivores, you also got to take into account those predator and prey dynamics, which are also always going to be in flux. Uh, with uh, rising and lowering prey populations. That's one of the big issues people who want to use mega- megafauna rewilding have to deal with. The annoying thing is it's probably the smallest issue as well. It's not It's not uh, like it's very much second to is it even appropriate to rewild here in the first place? Can we get people on board with rewilding here? Can we keep them on board? And is the rewilding going to make a significant impact on the ecosystem function? Because if it isn't, then at the end of the day, it's just species reintroduction, which is not what rewilding wants. It wants to influence ecosystem function. Wow, my brain yeah. has officially melted. It's like, I think I, I also le- leave rewilding to people who have bigger brain capacities than me to sort this out. I think there was some examples in the Netherlands somewhere yes. where a rewilding project had run into some trouble because was it mass starvation that happened to some of the herbivores? Yes, right. There's a it's quite a famous rewilding experiment now. And or, I'm glad that you can say the name, not me, because <laughs> I mean I've, I've prob- I'll probably butcher it. Ostvadeplazen was also just called OVP, uh, which is near Amsterdam. It's quite a big, big bit of land, and they had a lot of uh, large herbivores, and just like basically set them free in this like confined area. Again, I say confined; it's really big, and just wanted to see what happened to the habitat. Now they didn't have any sort of predators uh, here, so what happened in winter months? The large deer would overgraze, and then when winter came around, there wasn't enough vegetation to support them all. So what would start happening? They'd get these mass starvations which angered a lot of animal rights activists because it was kind of seen as scientists abusing animals on a large scale for the sake of the experiment. And if there were predators there, what would happen would, would again be this predator and prey dynamic where uh, the, the herbivores would get eaten. And then uh, as a result of that, the vegetation would be given time to, to bounce back and then the prey population would come up again. And that's what they wanted to happen, but they didn't have that because they didn't have any sort of predator regulation. So instead, they had to start implementing a pretty large cull of starving species, which, again, further angered the animal rights activists. But I suppose also at the same time, it's a case study of the kind of things that we need to consider, right? I mean, one thing, for example, is if you don't have predators controlling your herbivores, then maybe a human form of management is needed. 
the problem with that is that you then get into an, another argument about what kind of rewilding you want. There's not just one type of rewilding. There's passive rewilding where it's very much there's a bit of land we're just going to leave it, which I guess is kind of similar to Osvaldoplazen, where they originally would just introduce a bunch of uh, herbivore species and be like, okay, we'll just leave it and see what happens. Or there's active rewilding where you're engaging in uh, the management of a system until it eventually reaches that self-sustaining point that you want. In that case, if you weren't going to introduce any predators, the humans would then have to fulfill that predatory role. So is that place truly wild if people are having to take an active role in the function of it? Uh, when you settle one dispute with this, you then have to make another one. And it's just... It's it's a big, tricky box of lots of topics. It is. <laughs> That's a really weird way of phrasing it. But, I mean, <laughs> the fun essentially never stops when you start yeah. discussing rewilding. So the UK has lost quite a bit of its historical megafauna. And so I suppose a lot of the discussions is about what we should bring in again, looking at things that were here beforehand or that are close to what we had beforehand. Yeah, I feel like the net castle estate should really be a pretty good example of like how we can like move forward and also create roles that may not even necessarily have existed in the first place but are more wild i know this is recorded i've just used quotation marks to describe wild and the example i really like is the tamworth pig which is free roaming in nepa state now and it's effectively perhaps not to the same extent but it's fulfilling a similar role to hippopotamuses which in the sense that uh, it moves nutrients from terrestrial habitats to aquatic habitats like it will go br browse on some vegetation somewhere have a nice munch It'll go for a little swim and do a little poop. And the concept of uh, like pooping in water probably doesn't sound that impressive. I mean, you do it every day. But, but what's happening just by that one action is a potential movement of nutrients from a static place where it'd be locked for a very long time to a place where it can break down quicker and disperse quicker, even without the, the vector, the pig or the hippo substitute even being there. So there's a lot of potential knock-on effects just from that one little action that that little piggy is doing. So I'd like to see more than that. Two species I really want to see come back are beavers and wolves. Uh, wolves because, A, I just think they're cool, and B, like the main kind of... That's fair point. Yeah, I mean, I that's... Uh, on that. It would be I awesome. Mean, I want wolves to come back because deers are generally, like, the go-to overly dense megafauna population so having like a natural way of uh regulating them would su uh, suit places which are inhabited by deers quite well uh especially in very overpopulated places and the other one is beavers again because i think they're cool but also i feel like flood management is a big problem in the uk and purely from a pragmatic point of view the reinforcement of ecosystem functions that are linked to flood defense in the uk i think would speak to a lot of people, even those who aren't necessarily proponents of rewilding. Yeah, I think I'm with you on, on the beavers as well. I think also another thing is that a natural beaver pond creates so many habitats for other species. So you're encouraging a whole a whole new set of species to come back, which is awesome. And that's really what that's really what you want out of rewilding. You want to eventually set up a process by which biodiversity will encourage itself, will promote itself. And that does require some management in some cases. But again, it all comes down to human wildlife conflict. Because ultimately, like all the kind of like modeling and theory crafting we do is obviously important. But at the end of the day, it's kind of be implemented or not. Will people accept it? Are and we willing to live with megafauna again? Yeah, That's what it comes exactly. down to. Exactly. Only future will tell.